Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. So glad to be here. It's amazing to me that nine years ago this week, we launched our church and it was very different. And in God's providence, we uh, launched into a new location today. And we're thankful again, as Pastor Andrew mentioned, for all our teams working so hard to get us situated here. And I just want to say a special thank you to all of the dear, precious parents in the room. And I want to give you just a bit of uh, assurance that we as a team are working on a plan for children's ministry. And so as much as I love to see the children in the room and I love to hear the voices, whenever a, a child lifts their voice, I receive that as an amen. So you, you should learn from the children. And I want to hear that more. But we love to have the children in the room. But we want you to know also that we're working on a plan to get a children's ministry up and running again as we used to have, and that that would be a blessing to all the parents in the room as well. All right, well, coming off of a very encouraging and special and fruitful Easter weekend last week, and how many were encouraged by the baptisms? Put your hands together if you were encouraged by that. I was deeply encouraged. I really did feel like after those testimonies of life change that I didn't need to get up in the pulpit and say anything else, that God had done a lot through uh, those baptisms. I'm also thankful for the opportunity to get into God's word. So off of that beautiful Easter celebration, we're jumping right back into our series called Chaos and Christianity Expositions through Romans chapter 12 all the way to Romans 16. And so I want you to take your Bible right away and turn with me there to Romans chapter 13 today is where we're going to continue. Romans chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, please put up your hand. And one of the ushers, I think you're ready back there, would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible will be our gift to you. We'd love you to take it home and read it and have your life changed by it if you need that. So uh, Romans chapter 13 is where we're continuing today, uh, starting from verse 8 and going down to verse 14. I'm going to read the text of Scripture, and as I read it, I pray that you'll follow along with me, and as you follow along, I pray that you're understanding that what we're following along to is the living Word of God has power to change us today. So Romans 13, starting from verse 8, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law or the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly 
as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All right, one theme I want to pull out of this text that I think will be very pertinent for us in the day that we're living in. The title of the message today is this, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up, and this is where I want to start right now. If you have a notepad and a pen, I want you to be making notes here. It's time to wake up to, point number one is this, to the primacy of Christian love. It's time to wake up to the primacy or the centrality or the necessity or the priority, the primacy of Christian love. It's time for us to wake from sleep, loved ones. Notice verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. I want you to know that here the Apostle Paul is moving intentionally and cleverly from his discussion on the Christian's relationship to the governing authorities. Remember that? We spent three weeks on that. He's moving back towards the primary and central exhortation of the Christian life to love one another. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, man, this again, I know, I know, I grew up in Sunday school, I know, love, I understand, love one another, but loved ones, it's time to wake up out of slumber, because it's not happening very often, and certainly in the days that we're living in. I want you to remember that the Apostle Paul just finished a very practical set of instructions, specifically to pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. Remember all of that in the context of how we're to relate to the governing authorities. And he makes these instructions very clear. And now he uses the same language of owing. You see it in the text. The same language of, of owing to drive home the central and primary and supreme command of the Christian life, the command to love one another. Notice it again. Look at your Bibles. Verse 8 says, Owe no one anything, watch this now, except to love each other. So Paul says, make sure you don't owe anyone anything. Pay your debts always and on time, but make sure you understand that there is one significant exception to this command, that there is a debt that all Christians everywhere always owe to one another. There is a debt that can never be completely fulfilled. It's a debt that we perpetually owe to one another. And unlike all other debts, it's a debt that we gladly and willingly pay towards. It's the ongoing debt. It's the ongoing obligation to love one another. Have you ever thought of it that way? That the command to love one another is, in fact, a debt that we owe. I owe it to you. And you owe it to me, and we owe it to each other. Now, these are extremely important words, and this is an extremely important turn that Paul is making because of the concern that he'll be addressing very soon in Romans chapter 14, and, and we're going to be getting there. 
very soon. On the screen for you, I want to give you a sneak preview about where we're going in Romans 14. In the words that follow our text, Romans 14.1, Paul writes very pointedly, as for the one who is weak in faith, he says, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. All right, so understanding our passage in context, Paul is going to be addressing some things in the life of the church at Rome. And in fact, he's identified that there are people in the church at Rome that are quarreling over opinions. They're fighting each other. They're judging each other. They're despising each other. We're going to get there next week, and we're going to expand on what Romans 14 teaches us. And so Paul's writing this in light of that, where he's headed. Uh, we owe each other the debt of love in light of the fact that there's not much love happening or being expressed in the church at Rome. Now, I was listening to a podcast this week, and two church leaders were discussing the ongoing impact of the pandemic on life, the ongoing impact of the pandemic specifically on church life. And one of them, I want to quote, one of these church leaders said this. They said, pressure crushes rocks and it forms diamonds. And the pressure of the pandemic has caused a lot of things to bubble to the surface, he said. He said, the pandemic has been both the great exposer and the great accelerator. Character issues have been revealed. Calling issues have been revealed. This church leader goes on to, to, to describe the fact that many pastors throughout these last two years have uh, just resigned from their positions because of the pressures. And that's the thing. That pastors and church leaders have just given up and resigned and said, uh, essentially, I, I didn't sign up for this. And what are they talking about? They're talking about this quarreling of opinions more often than not. A quarreling over opinions that seem to permeate church life, that seem to take over church life, that seem to divide people and fracture families and fracture churches and fracture leadership teams and elder boards. And, and I was thinking about that, and, and I want you to be thinking about that as we understand what Paul is exhorting us to. I'm sure that you can identify, we can identify together how the pressures of the pandemic and the political polarization of the last two years has led to many breaks and fractures, even in your own life, let alone church life. And so we've seen that families and churches and even denominations and theological tribes who claim to really land on the same things doctrinally, even they are divided. And many, many cases show that this is because of a quarreling over opinion. See, the Apostle Paul is very um, concerned about this, this quarreling over opinions. And what has been revealed among several things in our context, particularly in the church, is that certainly there's been an inability to discern which hills are the right hills to die on theologically. And so there's quarreling over opinions. Some of you are hearing me talking, you're saying, yep, seen that happen. I've been in those conversations. 
Certainly what's been revealed in some cases is the inability of Christians to disagree with one another respectfully. And if you're on social media or you've just been living life these past two years, you say, yeah, I've kind of seen that. Yes, I've even participated in that. Someone's disagreed with me and I haven't been respectful in the ways I disagreed with them. And what's been revealed is just how pervasive woke ideologies and cancel culture are even in the church and how that tragically impacts our view of one another's opinions and how that fuels this quarreling and canceling of one another when we disagree with one another. But I think what's been revealed ultimately I really believe this. I think that's what Paul is seeing being revealed. That's what he's saying, what he's saying here in light of the fact that there's quarreling of opinions happening in Romans 14. He's going to talk about it. I think what we're seeing here is ultimately the disregard for and the failure on the part of some Christians to recognize the primacy of love. The centrality of love. Now, loving each other doesn't mean you can't disagree with each other. Just means it impacts how you do it. Loving each other doesn't mean you can't come to opposite ends of a specific issue. It doesn't, doesn't mean that, but it means it impacts how you do it and, and your mindset in how you do it. This is what Paul is getting at here as he's talking to a church that is quarreling over opinions, that is judging one another, that's despising each other. Again, we're going to get there. He wants to bring to the forefront again the primacy and centrality of this command to love in the Christian life, to pay the debt that we owe to one another when it matters the most, the debt we all owe to love one another. Now, what we want in our church is not a church that is homogeneous in everything we think. No. But what we want is a church that's filled with people who recognize and live out the primacy and centrality of love. Self-sacrifice. Thinking of others as more important than us. Looking at each other, especially when there's a temptation to quarrel over opinions and to pay the debt that we owe to each other. I love you. I'm going to give you that because I owe that to you. I'm going to treat you such that I love you and you're going to do the same. For me, it's the primacy of love that Paul is talking about here. And Paul says as he progresses towards addressing how Christians have been quarreling over opinions and judging and despising one another, he says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. And then he goes on, notice it in verse eight, he says, for the one who loves another, see it in the text there, verse eight, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now here, Paul is drawing from two places in scripture, at least first from the old Testament. And secondly, from the teachings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, on the screen for you, Leviticus 19, 18, certainly is what Paul has in mind here when it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And most definitely what Paul has in mind here is the words of Jesus Christ on the screen in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul has in mind here when Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's why he's teaching this all-important central command here. When Paul says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, he's reiterating what Jesus taught when he said that all the law and the prophets depend on the commands to love God and love people. If you, if you love, it all starts with love is what he's saying. Everything else hangs on this one command. What he's saying is that it is impossible to obey any command in scripture without obeying the command to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to expand this thought. I want you to notice it in verses nine to 10. Look at your Bibles, verses nine to 10. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And any other commandment, he says, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What we have here is essentially the centrality and the primacy of the command to love as the fuel for and the basis for all of our obedience to all other commands of Scripture. So essentially, you want to be obedient to God? It starts with love for God and love for neighbor. Everything else hangs on these commandments. How, you say? How is that so? Well, because as Paul illustrates right in verses 9 to 10, for example, the person who commits adultery is showing no regard or love for the person he is unfaithful to or the person he is unfaithful with. It starts with love for neighbor or, as Paul illustrates, the person who commits murder, for example, shows no regard or no love for the person that they're murdering. They can't obey the command not to murder if they don't first obey the command to love neighbor, or as Paul illustrates, the person who steals or the person who covets, for example, they steal and they covet with no regard for or love for the people they're stealing from or the people they're coveting. You see, that's why he says, all the law is summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we're tempted to say, come on, Jason, teach me something a little more profound. Certainly the Bible has something a little bit more profound for me today. This is the most profound word we can hear and obey today because we cannot fulfill the commands of God apart from first fulfilling this command to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
In other words, when you love your neighbor, you won't commit adultery with them, or you won't murder them, or you won't steal from them, or you won't covet what they have if you really love them. If you're paying to all what is owed to them, love, love. Therefore, Paul says in verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. Everything else depends on this. So when we lose our patience with each other and we sin in our hearts towards each other or we sin outwardly towards one another, really what's happening is that we've forgotten, we've lost sight of the primacy and the centrality of the command to love. You know that that's what's happening? Or when we refuse to forgive each other because someone has sinned against us, when we hold back forgiveness, what, what's really happening is that we have forgotten the primacy and the centrality of the command to love through our forgiveness towards one another, as we've seen exemplified perfectly and supremely through the Lord Jesus Christ, or when we choose to slander one another behind each other's backs, really what's happening is we've forgotten the primacy of the command to love. We've forgotten that Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you belong to me. It's not how big your church is. It's not how many programs is happening in the church. It's not how many Bible verses you can rehearse. And all of that certainly maybe has its place. But Jesus says, the way the world will know that you belong to me is not by having a Jesus fish on the back of your car. It's when they look at you and me and they see these people have embraced love for each other. Like even when they hurt each other, they extend love to each other through forgiveness and grace. And even when they wrong each other twice or or three times, the love covers, the Bible says, a multitude of sins. And people see that and they say, Something is different here. This is not a normal place. This is not a normal group of people. They love each other. And when we truly love each other in the church, we will be able to exercise patience and extend forgiveness and bear with one another when we're not patient and when we're not extending forgiveness. It's the debt that we owe. And it's time to wake up to this. You know what I've been praying as I approach this text and this week and as we come to this new uh, facility and and I've just been praying, Lord, would you... Even, even this morning, Lord, would people walk into this place and not be concerned about the place? 
Would people walk into this place and not think immediately the chairs are nice or they're not nice or it feels good or it doesn't feel good and man, I can't believe we had to move or, or whatever or I'm so glad we moved or whatever. May people walk into this place and sense Christian love. Because you know, the church really has nothing to do with the physical building and everything to do with the assembling of the body of Christ. And where people can identify that there is a strong and healthy assembling of the body of Christ is when people see not just a group of people in a room singing songs or hearing a preacher, they will know these must be Christians because they love each other. They're, they're not Buddhists, they're not Muslims, they're not Christian science, they're, they're not whatever. They're, no, they're, they're Christians, Christ followers, because they love each other. It's the debt that we owe. And I wonder if it's the command that we think about and prioritize in our lives every single day. I wonder if we're waking up in the morning and we're thinking to ourselves, Lord, immediately, Lord, help me to love my wife today. Help me to love my husband today. Help me to love my children today in a self-sacrificial way. Help me to give myself. Help me to give. I wonder if we're a people who come to church and we wake up on Sunday morning and we pray immediately. The, the, the heart expression is, Lord, help me to love these people today. Do it in me, do it through me. Let me see the beauty and the centrality and the perfection of your love for me. And Lord, would you live your life through me to these people? I know it's the debt that I owe them. And I want to love like you. You know how many marriages would be transformed if we woke up in the morning and said, fell to our knees and said, Lord, help me to love like you to my spouse today. Do you know how many churches would be radically transformed just by this daily prayer for one another that we would love each other? Do you consider the power of prayer in praying? Lord, help us to love each other. Like truly, sincerely, authentically, it's the debt that we owe and it's time to wake up. This week, our staff, we walked around this neighborhood and we handed out invitations and we thought to ourselves, no, this is not just a transitionary period of two months or whatever in this location and then go back to another location. We really believe that perhaps God has us here for a specific, distinct purpose. And we walked these streets and we just prayed and we put invitations in mailboxes and we prayed, Lord, this is not to make our name famous. This is not to show people how good our church is. What we want is people to discover the love and hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we prayed and we walked and we prayed for house numbers and we talked with people as we were passing them by. And we asked the Lord to make us a beautiful expression of light and hope and love in this neighborhood and wherever we go. That's one thing that must be said about the church. They love. 
in the truest sense of what that means. It's time to wake up, loved ones. And I pray even now we're waking up. It's time to wake up to the primacy of Christian love. Secondly, and finally this, it's time to wake up to the urgency of the Christian life. The urgency of the Christian life. Notice verse 11, look at it. Paul goes on, he says this, besides this, you know the time. Let's stop right here for a moment. Paul describes what he means by the time by using the metaphors of rising from sleep and the metaphor of night giving way to day to describe the time that he's talking about. Essentially, the time refers to our lives here in this world until Jesus Christ returns. Loved ones, don't ever forget this. We celebrated, we remembered the death of Christ, Good Friday. We celebrated the resurrection of Christ. Don't ever forget that there was an ascension And as Jesus was ascending to heaven, the disciples were looking up and the angel of the Lord came down and said, why are you standing here looking up as if you don't know what's going on? This same Jesus will one day come back in the same way that he is being taken up. He's coming back. You live that way with an urgency. That's what Paul is talking about here. Notice in verse 11. He says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For, watch this, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's saying, every single day, salvation, the culmination of God's purposes, the culmination of the redemptive purposes of God, the culmination of the reconciliation plan of God, the restorative plan of God for human beings and for the entire universe. It's one day closer today than it was yesterday. You know that? Christians don't just wander around and twiddling our thumbs. And I wonder what's going to happen. I I wonder how this thing all ends. I I wonder what God is planning up there. He gives us the book. Paul says to live with such urgency as to know when you woke up today, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. And that should impact the way that we live. So he uses the metaphor of waking from sleep as a way of saying, wake up from your spiritual slumber. Snap out of your careless Christianity. Rise up out of the bed of your moral laxity and your spiritual apathy. Why? Because Christ is coming back. And by the way, he's given us work to do. He's given us a task. He's coming back because, as he says, our salvation, our full redemption, the consummation of Christ's great kingdom is nearer today than it was yesterday. And with each passing day, it's nearer than the day before. So what do we do? We wake up. We snap out of it. You have someone coming to visit you in the morning, maybe a plumber coming to fix a leaky faucet or to replace a toilet or to do something around the house. And and sometimes contractors, they plan early in the morning to come. You're not going to be in bed when they come. You got to let them in the house. You got to be ready. Don't be sleepy. Be awake. Notice the metaphor. Put a bit differently now in verse 12. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Now here's what Paul is driving at. The time for sleeping is nighttime. That's what he's saying. Makes sense, right? The time for sleeping is nighttime, but the Christian life is a life that's been brought out of the darkness of the night and into the light of the day. So don't act like it's nighttime and be sleeping. Live like it's daytime because it is for the Christian. You've been brought out of the darkness of night and into the light of day. So stay awake and live in a way that's fitting for the daytime. It's a good word for us. On the screen for you, commentator Douglas Moo wrote this helpful insight. He said, in a society governed by the sun rather than the convenience of artificial lighting, people rose at dawn. Only slackers would keep to their beds after the first glow of daylight. Early rising was especially necessary in the Near East where the bulk of the work needed to be done before the heat of midday. Paul wants no slackers among his readers. Christians are to be alert and eager to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. So, what does it mean? What does it look like to be alert and awake? Well, he continues with the metaphor and then begins to explicitly contrast it. Look at verse 13. Look at it. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Watch this now. Not in, so here's the contrast. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He's saying what he said essentially in chapter 12, verse two, but in a different way. You remember it? Do not be conformed to this world. The world, it means this present evil age. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What does conformity to this world look like? What does being spiritually asleep look like? Well, we just read it. Orgies and drunkenness and sexual morality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. These are the works of darkness. He says, wake up and live properly because you are people of the day. And I would add, what does it look like to be spiritually asleep? What does it look like? I would add, uh, numbing your brain with countless Netflix binges. That's sleepy. I would add mindless scrolling through Instagram and TikTok and, and YouTube. That's, that's, that's sleepiness. I would add un, the unconscious obsession with our own comfort and our own safety and our own convenience and all of our possessions. I would add the deception that's being bred through isolation and uh, individualism. That's all sleepiness. And Paul says, wake up. You are people of the day. Don't sleep. You sleep at night. But now you're, it's daytime. You're people of the day. Stay awake. Now, Leonard Ravenhill wrote this. He wrote, today, Lucifer is probably surveying the church. 
One can almost behold the fear in his eyes as he thinks of the church's unmeasured potential and growls, let the church sleep. If she wakes, she will shake the world. Is not the church the sleeping giant of today? As today's church of Jesus Christ thinks about the day of reckoning that is surely coming, oh, that a holy fear would come upon her, even if it drives her to extremes, he says, in order to arouse her from her present paralysis. I read that this week and my heart was so gripped. Ravenhill says, isn't it true that the church is the is the sleeping giant in the world. Satan prowls around, says, let the church sleep. Let the people sleep. Let them be drunk with the obsession of their own self-exaltation and their own comfort. Let them stay sleepy in their own obsession of church buildings and church programs. Let them stay asleep They're a sleeping giant. If they wake up, they will shake the earth. It's true. It's true. If the church wakes up, and I'll say with faith today for our little church, when our little church wakes up, really wakes up. We can shake this city for the glory of God. Do you believe that? We can't sleep. Sleeping is for nighttime. But we are awake. Oh, that we would be awakened again to the primacy and centrality and the priority and the necessity of Christian love. Oh, that we would be awakened again to the urgency and the power of the Christian life. Oh, that we would, that we would wake up such that God would find for himself a church that is full of people who love not their lives, but who lay down their lives. Oh, that we would be so awake that the prayer meetings would be filled. Oh, that we would be so awake that we leave our homes to gather with people to pray, viewing it not as an inconvenience, viewing it as a desperate necessity. Oh, that we would be awake, so awake as to truly surrender our lives entirely to him, to surrender our will, to surrender our affections, to surrender our thoughts, to surrender our resources, our money, our properties, our very lives. Everything belongs to him. This is what it means to be awake. This is the great call upon us to be awake. Do you want to be part of a sleepy church? Would you want to be a part of a, an awakened church, an alive church? Look at verse 14 now. Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is what it means to stay awake, to put off the works of darkness, to cast it off, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this elsewhere in scripture. We put off the works of darkness. We put off the old self. We put on Christ. We put on, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it means to embrace Jesus Christ in his word and to depend on Jesus Christ through prayer in such a way that allows his character to allow his power, to allow his very life to shape our lives and to manifest in all that we do. It means to be covered. It means to be mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way as to make no room for the flesh, no provision for its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I'm studying this, as I'm preparing the message this week, I'm thinking to myself, Lord, stir up my affections for you. There are too many days where I'm too sleepy and I care not about putting on Christ. But oh, when I get around the believers in the church, when I put myself in a posture of worship, this weekend, Aileen and I were at the marriage conference in Oakville and I thought to myself, It's good to be with the people of God. We worshiped and we sat under the teaching of scripture. And I thought, as we were registering for the conference a few weeks ago, I thought, can we really do this? Do we really have enough time? And I'm so glad we did. It's a way to put on Christ, to sit under the teaching of the word of God, to be with the people of God. And I found my heart edified and I found my heart encouraged and I found my heart stirred within me to put on Christ. I hope that happens to you, even being here today. So what does it look like practically? Well, way back at the beginning of this series, I asked you, do you have a reading plan yet? Don't feel guilty. But are you in the word? We can't put on Christ if we're not in the word. When are you going to get your reading plan or find a way to be in the word? By the way, our website has a lot of resources to help you. If you want to know how or what to read or what authors are reliable or how to read the word of God, go to our website and under the resources tab, we have safe and solid resources there for you to help you. We want to help you to put on Christ. What does it look like practically? Are you disciplining your life to be lived out? Lived in and out of the living word of God? Are you intentionally and thoughtfully and sacrificially positioning yourself as a living sacrifice every day? Are you offering yourself to him in worship? Are you getting to the place of fellowship and prayer with others? Are you choosing each day, moment by moment, who it is you will be worshiped by, by worshiping by intentional and active choosing? Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh gratify its desires. He's saying, give no opportunity for your flesh to indulge. How do we give opportunity? Well, if you know that late at night on social media never leads you to a good place, then stop it. 
Why are we sitting there for hours scrolling and we walk away feeling disgusting? Just stop doing it. See, we forget that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We think we're helpless. If you know that a certain group of people at a certain place, a certain time of the week never leads you to a good place, then stop it. Why can't you stop it? You can with the power of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with temptation. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin, but I have found this to be true in my Christian life. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you've found this to be true too. My defense against temptation is that I would put on Christ every day that I would read the word, that I would pray, that I would surround myself with believers. It doesn't mean the temptation doesn't come. It just means that I'm armed. It means that I have power. And if we're not reading the word, if we're not praying, if we're not together, if we're in isolation, if we're scrolling on YouTube all day and that's shaping our thinking, you don't really have a chance. If you know that seeing a certain something or hearing a certain something or touching a certain something or fantasizing about a certain something never leads you to a good place, then, then stop it. You say, I can't, it's hard. Some of you say, it's, it's an addiction for me. There's grace for that. There's grace. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Believe in the one that you seek in prayer. Come together with one another. Help each other. Love each other. Come with your addiction to the church. Come with your addiction to one another. Come and speak about it and bring God's word to bear on it and struggle through it together. Nobody is perfect, but we all put on Christ together. Amen? Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision, loved ones. I love what John Piper said. He said, unless we know that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. That's why we're jumping up and down asking you to come to the prayer meeting because life is war. Because some of us in this room are battling addiction. Some of us in this room are struggling under the weight and the pressure of being crushed by our own decisions and our own sin. And you're not alone. Life is war. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. It's true. It's a reality. We're not surprised by these things. But that's why we pray. And that's why we come together. And that's why we believe the truth of God's word. And we throw the promises of God against the false lies of Satan when he comes to tempt us. Because life is war. This is not easy. But God has made every provision for us. Put on Christ. Feel the urgency of the Christian life. Surrender your life to Jesus today. Remember the mercies of God of Romans 1 to 11. 
And if you're here right now and you're thinking to yourself, man, I am just, I've made a mess of my life. If you're here right now and you're thinking, my life is a mess, I can't live up to this, let me just let you in on a little secret that's not so much a secret. None of us can live the Christian life apart from surrender to Jesus Christ and the embrace of the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ because God never commands from us that which he is not willing to do in us. And the Christian life is not try harder to do better. The Christian life is yielding to God in my inability and God coming into me and filling me and living through me. The Christian life is not Jason working hard to be a good Christian. The Christian life is saying, God, I can't. I'm so weak. Come fill me. And Jesus comes in. He fills and he lives this life through me. Do you want that today? You feel overwhelmed by your sin? Do you feel overwhelmed by your addiction? Maybe. Do you feel overwhelmed by your inability? You don't have to try harder to do better. You just have to offer him your life. Offer him your life. And he will come and fill you. And he will live through you. Isn't that what we want? It's what I want. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. I'm going to ask you to stand where you are. And I'm going to encourage you right now. I want to encourage you right now to be in a posture of surrender. And I always encourage you even to position yourself physically to show that you are surrendered. The Bible says, in your name, I will lift my hands as an offering of worship, as an expression of surrender. And if you're in this room today and you feel weak, you feel like you're being too involved in the works of the night and the darkness. You can lift your hands and say, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Surrender myself to you. I give myself to you right now. Every single person in this room in some way, with some expression, Lord, I surrender my life to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Fill me with your spirit. You can pray that. Ephesians 5 says, don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Fill me, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. If you're in this room today and you feel very weak, you feel very dry spiritually, you feel like, yes, that's me. I am very sleepy and I need to wake up. Just offer yourself to him and say, Lord, fill me. And change me. With each one as an offering right now before the Lord, He doesn't despise the offering of a broken and a contrite heart. He loves you and He wants to change you and me. And it's a progressive changing, loved ones, every single day. You feel the urgency, though, to wake up. Pray we would. Pray we would. So Lord, lead us now as we sing to you and we offer ourselves to you. I pray hands would be raised, hearts would be extended. 
I pray you find that there's an offering given to you today and you would come and live your life through us. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree, say amen. 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 Let's sing together. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.